and a special welcome to Father Spitzer's universe at this time of year at an intersection of faith and reason, a great season of the church, moving through Advent into Christmas here. I'm Doug Keck, and of course I'm hosting along with Father Spitzer. He's the answer man, and uh, his answers will come from your questions. So if you can, email them to us at spitzersuniverse, one word, at EW10.com. Check out Father Spitzer's Magic Center website, incrediblecatholic.com. Uh, a lot of great information there. The show is always available on EWTN On Demand and on the EWTN YouTube channel. So if you miss any portion, you'd like to see it again, review some of the questions or answers, you can find it all right there. And today, we're specifically focusing on your questions having to do with Christmas. We'll be there in a second. And the book of the month uh, for December is by the one and only Dr. Ray Garendi of Radio and TV Fan Adoption. Should you, could you, and then what? And he should know he adopted so many children. Check that book out, published by EWTN's Religious Catalog, of course, through our publishing house here at EWTN. It's available from us. And now Father will lead us in prayer as we kick off this show on the cusp of the Christmas season here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, especially the blessing uh, we anticipate in this season, the coming of your Son into our lives, into the world, to redeem us, to help us, to show us the way. We ask you, dear Lord, that we might just take advantage of everything he said and did for us so that we too might spend eternity with you. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let me ask you, Father, as we spend this program uh, answering questions about Christmas. So uh, mm -hmm. what was your favorite Christmas memory? growing up? Oh, I probably have a couple of them. I mean, one of them was when my mom just so astutely identified uh, the joy I was feeling. And I, I, the Lord was giving me a real experience of, of Christmas joy. And, uh, and one, uh, one year, and I, I, was, uh, I didn't yet have a driver's license, so I couldn't have been uh, in the 10th grade, or uh, it'd have to be ninth grade or less. And um, we uh, always opened our presents on Christmas Eve. And then, mm -hmm. of course, uh, we would go to a Christmas Mass. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the Christmas Mass, Mom would be driving down there. And so uh, um, uh, I just said, Mom, I really feel a, a real joy tonight. And she said, oh, did you get all the presents you wanted? And I said, no, it's not the presents, but they were great presents, but that's not it. She goes, well, oh, maybe you were just feeling the joy of being around your family at Christmas. And everybody, I said, Mom, I love our family, but nah, it's not family, it's not, that's not it. Yeah. So she goes, she's thinking, she's thinking, she finally goes, well, well, maybe it's the joy of the whole communion of saints coursing through your veins at this Christmas tide. I said, that's it. That, that's what it is. I mean, it's like mystical. So, I mean, I thought, yeah, maybe the saints are happy and I'm just happy along with them. So that was a, a great uh, experience of Christmas that uh, right. I, uh, I, I always had. I, I, I always liked serving Mass. Um, you know, at, uh, during the Christmas season, uh, 
uh, those were times that were really great. I mean, my family celebrating Christmas was a pure joy. I mean, mm. and I love my brothers and sisters to death and celebrating with them. We're, we're basically five kids in six and a half years, so we're all closer than yeah. bugs in a rug. Right. But uh, basically, you know, we, uh, we uh, were, um, you know, I just I really loved celebrating with them. I love the way my mm. parents just had, you know, everything prepared in the home, yet everything, my mom was so conscientious about the religious dimension. I was gonna ask you about the, that, right, about that yeah. part. What was it, how did your parents go about it, your mom go about, like, letting you enjoy Christmas as a kid, but keeping that, the, the faith aspect alive in it as well? Oh, because, you know, the, I mean, we had a big, huge crash set, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was a big crash set set out in our living room, and uh, it uh, sort of had center stage mm -hmm. along with the Christmas tree, which was on the other side of our house near our little picture window there, and so, um, uh, but, uh, you know, there would be always the the, the vision of the crash set, there'd always be the grace, there'd always be mass, uh, you know, that, uh, that was kind of the center point of things. There'd always be uh, the Christmas story and, of course, Christmas carols. We didn't have any secular Christmas carols in our house. It was all religious ones, and thank God for it because it just really, I loved them, and it just made the whole experience uh, uh, so sacred, and you know, it's we have this. My sister celebrates Christmas up there in Portland. You know, I go up there, and um, uh, it is, uh, you know, she's got all of the the old Christmas hymns. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm going back in right, time. Right, she right. even has her stockings out there, and, <laughs> you know. But but uh, so the secular part, but also the very much the religious part, and and um, center stage, and so I. I, I, I have to tell you, that, that crash scene, um, there was a, a lot of, I'm talking about mystical things, you know, I, I could just almost stare right into it some days, and I knew that this was the center, and mm -hmm. I looked forward to going to Christmas Mass. I also looked f forward to going to Good Friday Ceremony and to Easter mm -hmm. Sunday. I, I looked, I really looked forward to Mass, and I looked forward to serving Mass. I, uh, you know, I, I really, it just was, you know, in the dialectic with the, uh, with the presence and the uh, other things, you know. And of course, my family was all the, the things rolled up into one. I, Christmas was terrific for me in every way. So, uh, yeah, I uh, have to say. Right, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. So let's move on to some of the questions that our, our loyal audience has forwarded to us about Christmas for mm -hmm. you to take on. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer. Well, is it okay to let kids enjoy Santa Claus? My kids know about Jesus and he's the primary focus of our Christmas celebration, but is there any harm in letting them enjoy a little bit of the tradition of Santa? And this is from Connie. Connie, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, I certainly enjoyed my fair share of it and had my thoughts about the excitement of Santa coming and things of that nature. Uh, I know that some people, you know, have said that when they found out in the seventh grade or fifth grade or whenever it was that Santa wasn't real, that they were terribly disappointed. But, you know, I, I have to say that was not my experience, and it wasn't the experience of my friends. I mean, we, you know, by about fourth grade, you know, there were rumors out there, you know, and uh, the old school, and, you know, I 
remember Scott Bickle or somebody coming up to me and going, you know, there might not be a Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, really? And, you know, I kind of kept the, the thing going in my mind. But once the, plant, the, the thought gets planted, you know, so, of course, I go to my older brother, wise in years, you know, and I said, oh, Johnny, what about this Santa thing, real or not real? I don't think it's real, Bob. You know, so eventually, you know, you get the, uh, you get the reality. But I never really, uh, as, you know, the, the listener just said, uh, she puts the priority on Christ. That's the reality. And so as, you know, the myth uh, wears away, um, as it were, um, you know, uh, my parents were very careful to say, uh, this is not wearing away. The, notice that maybe we don't do the Santa Claus thing, but we're going to church. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's because this is the reality and Jesus has come into our lives. And that really did play the forefront of Christmas for us. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the Mass was very important uh, to us. And, you know, even getting to the Sacrament of Reconciliation during Advent and mm -hmm. so forth. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I even remember our Christmas parties, you know, at, uh, at church. We, you know, we went to catechism class mm -hmm. and, um, on Saturdays, and I just loved uh, those Christmas parties um, at the catechism class because, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was really a faith-filled celebration. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that really Santa Claus was, was notab noticeably absent, but yeah. there were gifts. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, anyway, that was, uh, uh, was really great. So, yeah, I would say uh, right. uh, please do not worry about right. that at all. They'll get the word out there and just make sure that they know, you know, as the word comes, you know, that maybe right. the myth is not there. Still, this is a representation of their parents' love, but that Jesus is the reality and his love in coming into the world is that's the real gift the of Christmas right. and, to, and to, to celebrate the joy that he cared enough about us to want to save us. Right, and I think the great uh, gift that I always thought the Catholic faith has is that if one can learn and, 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 and understand the faith, the idea is then that one can deal with these outside things in different times and be able to participate with them without having them uh, erode your belief system. Exactly, you know? exactly. And I think, you know, any, if parents take care to, you know, as the transition happens, I guess about the fifth grade or whatever, yeah. uh, you know, as they sort of take care to, to transition it just to make sure that they know this is the Jesus is the reality and right. he was a historical reality and he historically rose from the dead and and uh, you know that's the point to start putting you know together a little bit of the evidence because if a kid says well mm. how do you know mm -hmm. there's plenty of evidence and I probably just uh, you know give them a little bit of the shroud of Turin and I give mm. them a little bit of you know the uh, historical people who attested to Jesus and uh, you know, I would talk, uh, you know, a great deal about who are some of the great people who believed in Jesus, you know, these great scientists who uh, were believers in, in Jesus, and there were many of them, and of course, great uh, cultural heroes, too, who certainly believed in Jesus, and I think my parents, uh, you know, reinforced what I was getting in catechism class right. along those lines, but I do think apologetics becomes important, mm -hmm. even starting in fifth, sixth grade, 
you know, as um, they begin to find out Santa's not so real, right. now's the time to give them evidence, that, real evidence that Jesus right. is real. And that mm -hmm. there are other people they know who believe different things than they might mm -hmm. and their family might believe. Next mm -hmm. up, here's another question, dear Father Spitzer. I was told Jeremiah chapter 10 prohibits Christmas trees. Speaks of cutting trees from the forest and decorating them with silver and gold, referring to them as idols. I certainly do not look at my Christmas tree as an idol, but should we refrain from using them? Is there a Christian meaning to the Christmas tree with ornaments? And this is from Angel. Well, Angel, I don't, you know, obviously it was a Roman custom for solstice. And so essentially the Christmas tree uh, was, it started off as a pagan symbol, but Christians Christianized it um, so that it wasn't just a winter solstice thing. It was basically an angel was on the top. They would have various Christmas decorations that had, uh, you know, either some uh, angelic, uh, you know, dimension to it or some, um, you know, dimension of saints or something on some of the Christmas decorations, etc. So they definitely Christianized uh, the tree. And of course, there's always the crib scene, um, you know, the crash scene that is um, generally in a Catholic household, uh, which is side by side with the Christmas tree. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with having a Christmas tree. And Jeremiah 10, uh, they didn't uh, see the, the context. Uh, I mean, Jeremiah, you know, lived way before Jesus and lived way before, um, you know, the Christian church was adapting. Mm the winter solstice feast to the Christmas feast and, and did that, I think, in a very ingenious way. And the Christmas tree is perfectly charming uh, in a way. Right. You know, it's kind of a, you know, some people look at it as a tree of life symbol, right. you know, something of that nature. And I think it's just fine, but I don't think you have to give it that symbolic significance as long as right. we remember, you know, that uh, the crib scene, that's the real scene. Right. Right. And the Christmas tree is kind of a nice adornment that gives us a sense of the winter dimension and the right. a sense too of uh, you know um, um, you know uh, you know right. gifts of love that are there with the tree. Right, and then we can thank so. I think the Germans for the most part for really popularizing certainly in in, in our part of the world coming out of England yeah. and to here. So yeah, uh, very yeah, good. Absolutely. Okay, very good. Of course, try not to put it up uh, uh, right after uh, Halloween or something. Try, uh, <laughs> try, maybe try to get through Advent there or pretty closer <laughs> yeah. as part of yeah. it. So, you know, <laughs> and I'd say yeah. that because the next person's uh, point makes this point. Well, Dear Father Spitzer, Dear Father Spitzer, <laughs> Christmas decorations appear in stores in October. Actually, they're, they're in there in September sometimes. Oh, People wow. start planning and celebrating earlier every year when everything is gone by December 26th. The whole meaning of Advent has disappeared. Our family tries to celebrate Advent and Christmas is intended, but every year we appear further and further out of step with secular society and even our extended family. Any advice on how to faithfully celebrate the season in the face of the pressure to adapt to secular society? This is Brian. And certainly EWTN over the years has always had Advent reflections. Uh, we have the Advent wreath, which we feature on the network. We also have the Jesse Tree devotion, which uh, we have put mm -hmm. forward as well, which kind of gets you from the Jesse tree right up to the Christmas tree. So, but it is uh, yeah. something that that's difficult. Yeah, it is. I, no question. There's so much pressure around the shopping dimension and so forth. And 
you know, I do Christmas cards because I believe that they're expressions of love and things of that nature, and I definitely put the religious significance in my cards and choose cards that are religious uh, for that reason, uh, to put the, the, the reason for the season, as they say, back mm -hmm. into it. So um, uh, I do that, but also when I was a kid, if you're talking about your family, mm -hmm. uh, we always used to have advent calendars that right. were specifically religious, so when you open the little uh, door uh, you know, each of the doors leading up to Christmas, you know, um, uh, and this little uh, placard, you kind of put, just push this piece of paper back and there would be some kind of a surprise, but it would be a spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. So we had definitely religious-based Advent calendars, which were really right. great, and or a little saying, and but we were always excited to hear what was behind the door, and we knew it was mm -hmm. leading up to Christmas, so that was always right. a a nice thing Absolutely. for the children right. uh, to get involved in. And, and sometimes the kids like to, um, you know, uh, uh, get to light the candle or something if you're doing an Advent a celebration right. at home, if you got a wreath, uh, you know, something of that nature. Uh, now, um, you know, I, I think just keeping that right in the forefront and, um, you know, just those mm -hmm. readings from Isaiah are so fantastic. Mm -hmm. Just explaining that to your kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know what these things are all about and uh, there's nothing wrong with playing you know the lead-up songs from the Messiah mm -hmm. um, you know and explaining that to the kids it's like a catechesis um, that's that's going on in that uh, in the um, you know the words he takes right from the scriptures of course uh, going forward and it's you know of course kids don't maybe like the more classical Baroque sounding you know, uh, things, but uh, for whatever reason I did, I was probably an unusual kid, but um, uh, nevertheless, I do think the catechesis in that, uh, in that piece mm -hmm. is fantastic because each of those uh, things, if you explain those Isaiah passages, you know, um, they're pretty, they're amazing. They get mm -hmm. you thinking, mm -hmm. uh, even as a kid, you know, gosh, maybe they're, these, there really were <coughs> these authentic prophets out there. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, anyway, uh, so those were um, those are maybe some of the things you could do to to keep it going. And the Jesse tree, of course, is a great right. thing uh, as well. Very good. And here, another question rolls into something you alluded to, dear Father Spitzer. Every year, I hear reports of the war on Christmas and the removal of Christ from Christmas. Stores have holiday sales. Schools have winter break. And I get cards wishing me, quote unquote, happy holidays. A recent survey showed only about 3% of the respondents were offended by the idea of Christ and Christmas. Why the big push to secularize a Christian ho holy day? Most people don't seem to be bothered by Mary Ann. Well, Mary Ann, I guess uh, the reason they're selling secular Christmas cards is because people are buying them. Mm -hmm. And the reason people are buying them is. Uh, they kind of um, have gone for a more secular meaning of uh, Christmas. Um, they don't think they really have to put their Christian faith forward. Um, gosh, I have a lot of Jewish friends. Mm -hmm. I send them my regular Christmas card. That I always get the classical scenes mm -hmm. from, you know, the gallery collection. You know, I just put, you know, these wonderful classical paintings mm -hmm. of Christ and the crib scene and so forth on my Christmas cards. Every year I send them out. Uh, my Jewish friends are not offended. Right. You know, and uh, 
you know, at the end of my cards, I put, you know, a happy, uh, you know, bang, 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 you know, uh, uh, for uh, Jewish uh, feasts on mm. there, a little Hebrew blessing or something mm. at the end. But I send them my Christmas card and nobody gets offended. So I would just say, uh, order good religious right. cards. You know, you don't have to order the fancy ones no. with the classical paintings on, but, you know, something that just really has right. the Christian message. Uh, right there and you're in front. Right, and your friends understand you and they wouldn't want you to deny what you believe like you wouldn't exactly. want them to deny what they believe or who they are. That's what makes them special and, and makes them your friend, right? Yep, exactly. And so uh, I definitely, uh, um, you know, if you mm. walked into our house or you walk into my sister's house, I mean, there's the crib scene. Right. Uh, everybody knows, oops, you know, there's a Christian. And uh, right. I'm glad they know, you know, and uh, they can feel right at home in that good Absolutely. Christian setting. But it is interesting, though, too, because the point you made, and I was thinking about it when, um, when you were talking about uh, the Advent calendars, you know. And recently, yeah. you know, because you'd see the ones that were definitely Christ-oriented, and then you'd have ones that were sort oh, yeah. of Christmas-oriented, which you could kind of sort of... Now you see, yeah. I actually saw one the other day that was a Harry Potter advent calendar. Uh. And it's like, I mean, and so it does fit into that idea of trying to yeah. take the meaning out. The other thing that I found, and this is off topic, but I'm going to ask your opinion yeah. uh, on it, is disturbing to some degrees. I, you see all these incredible Halloween displays now on people's houses and not only are they a little morbid many times, but they're ostentatious compared to what they used to be. Almost like they're, they're moving the, what they used to do for Christmas for some people to Halloween. Yeah, uh, I, I guess it's the dress up part of it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's face it, we got the Comic-Con culture right. a little bit, you right. know, and so you get a, one of those conventions, people walking around in costumes all, costumes all over the place. I lived at Georgetown for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And believe me, on Halloween, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, going up and down Wisconsin Avenue, every costume under the sun, it was like, this is, it was like Mardi Gras, right. you know, on, on Halloween. So it, it's been going on for quite mm -hmm. some time. I, I don't think it's, uh, Half the time, it's really not paganized. Mm -hmm. It's just a bunch of people who are having a costume party, uh, maybe getting a little out of hand with it, mm -hmm. um, you know. But why the decorations, uh, um, you know, that get uh, that border on the occult? That mm -hmm. stuff, I, mm -hmm. I think, is really crazy. Right. I mean, if you want to bring occult stuff on your house, you know, why why would you want to even think right. about that or doing that? So, I mean, if you're gonna you know, put plenty of pumpkins or something, right, or exactly. you know, something not occultish or even borderline occultish. Uh, you know, don't don't go in for the right. uh, the really bad stuff, and just stick with the pumpkins. Absolutely, you know, or that's right. Yeah, or the great pumpkin. Uh, maybe that's as far as yeah. Go, so. <laughs> right, right. Next, next up, right. Uh, dear Father Spitzer. The infancy narrative in Luke says Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Some use this as an argument that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. I understand the importance of Mary's virginity before the birth of Christ, but why was it important for her to remain a perpetual virgin? This is Barbara. Well, Barbara, two things. I mean, primogeniture, it doesn't imply anything 
uh, in that culture about having other sons. So if people take it that way, they're reading a contemporary interpretation into something that was not meant to have. The same thing with the use of the word until, uh, you know, um, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, where people say, see, after uh, she gave birth to Jesus, she had other brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that at all. If you look mm. at the grammar of the Greek word, it has no such meaning. But this is, you know, you take the English translation and then read a contemporary interpretation into it, which was never meant to be there by the biblical author. Hello, let's just mm. call it a, a, a day and just stick with the traditional interpretation, mm. the way it was read by the entire, you know, every early church father. I mean, I just don't think we have to worry too right. much about that. And by the way, um, you know, people have done tons of books uh, on these things and, and have explained uh, that grammar again and again. And, you know, I mean, why did Jesus turn to John at the Passion mm -hmm. and say, behold your mother? Why did he do that? If, Jesus, if, if Mary had other sons, then Jesus's demise would not have forced Mary uh, to, to find another household as a, a person who, right, Joseph's gone, now Jesus is going to be gone. He has to find, right, you know, a, another son to take care of her. I mean, let's face facts. If there were really other brothers that, of Jesus, that ritual would have been superfluous at best. Mm -hmm. So the, the point, and there's many other reasons. I mean, I just give you one. Right. So don't, don't let this stuff uh, get to you. The church, early church fathers had the correct reading of the Greek. Obviously, they knew Greek a little better than we do. And the second thing is they certainly understood the significance of that Joanine narrative. Right, there's no one around to take care of little Mary after all this that has happened. Jesus is taking care of his mom because there are no other sons out there. So that's the, the point. Then the, um, right. uh, what was the second part of the question? I forgot. And, um, and why did, and, so why did Mary then need to be a perpetual virgin? Oh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, the idea of perpetual virginity, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, is, she is chosen for a specific task in the whole of history, uh, and it cannot be supplemented by anything else, nor would she want it to be supplemented by anything else. Jesus is the height of her life, her reason for being. Mm -hmm. She is the mother of the incarnate one. Uh, everything else, as it were, uh, would have put, you know, the, the, the need for carnal relations on a par uh, with her being the mother of the incarnate one. And she saw that not only as unnecessary, but, and, and certainly, you know, superfluous, but like, uh, what are we talking about here? You know, <laughs> this is of no importance to me. Uh, the importance now is the Redeemer of the world is here, and I have done my function in my freedom, and I am raising this boy, and that's what I'm supposed to do. Everything else is it pales by comparison. And so the idea of taking on virginity now uh, as something, as a sacrifice for the kingdom, uh, to put, as it were, the spiritual above the temporal, 
now becomes a true value within the church because, um, you know, people think, oh, you know, um, uh, the church retrojected virginity, perpetual right. virginity back to Mary, the great, you know, Protestant accusation, you know, where, as in point of fact, it was the exact opposite way around. It was her perpetual virginity that projected uh, the, the importance of virginity, of giving up one's life. Uh, of course, this is also Jesus' preaching, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you become a eunuch for the kingdom of God, right? This is also part of his, his preaching. But the point is, when you combine it all, that's why virginity became important in the church, not vice versa. It's, I, mean, I don't see how people can get these backward interpretations of things that are so obviously best put together going forward. Mm. But nevertheless, uh, that's the way it turned out. But virginity is important. Virginity is important because it means total self-dedication. And that's the way Mary saw it. And virginity is important because it means that we can give ourselves completely to the service of the church as Jesus asked us uh, to do. That if, it's, if we're capable, if we're given the call by God and the grace by God, yes, to give ourselves not to the just to the service of Him, to the service of the kingdom of God, to, which is, of course, the service to the church, and so give ourselves totally to it. Why not? What could be a better life than that? Now, yes, it's it's uh, hard to do. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. But it's just a, it's a fantastic thing, and it completely transforms your prayer. When you're single, it is different you know, uh, then when you are married. Married prayer is great. I'm not disdaining it in the least. I'm not saying it's inferior, but I love my celibate prayer and I love my relationship with the Lord in it. And I love my relationship with Mary in it. I like being who I am and the Lord supports me and gives me that grace in that, uh, in my capacity as a priest. Mm -hmm. So that is, uh, you know, I mean, the whole thing of, of turning this into the church being against sex or afraid of sex, right, right. I mean, it's just mind-blowingly dumb, you know, and I, sometimes I shouldn't get so uh, uh, expressive about it, but it, it just honestly, uh, you know, makes me scratch my head. I don't think that's the problem at all. Right. I think the, the idea is we were given an ideal by Mary, and I'm going to follow it. Uh, as best I can. And Absolutely. by the way, that very same ideal was given to us by Jesus, and right. I'm going to follow him in it too. Uh, so that's the, the whole um, idea behind virginity. That's Sorry. right. Like they say, wise men still follow his star. So we're going to take a break much yes. more ahead with uh, Father Spitzer with your Christmas questions. Stay with us. And thank you so much for staying with us here on the special program for Christmas, answering your questions about this great season of the church and a great time to be a Catholic. As always, we're with Father Spitzer, asking him uh, some questions about his past and his experiences, his own Christmas growing up, and now also answering some of your questions. Here's a question for you. Dear Father Spitzer, traditional nativity seems to depict Jesus as being born in some dirty, drafty, 
barn or cave surrounded by oxen, donkeys, and various other animals. Alternately, I've heard that uh, Jesus was born in a cave used to house lambs for sacrifice in a temple in Jerusalem. Since the lambs needed to be without blemish, this cave was pristine and not defiled by other animals. This seems fitting since Jesus is the Lamb of God. Your thoughts, Meg? That's a new one on Meg. Well, Meg, my view is it seems like it was a stable, and of course, when you're talking about a manger, mangers are definitely made for feeding of cows and animals. So I'm going with the traditional interpretation that uh, there probably right. had been animals that were there. Otherwise, I don't see a reason for a manger. Right. But the point, of course, of the story is this. Jesus was born in poverty. Right. That Jesus was born under really difficult, as you put it, dirty conditions. Jesus did not come into the world with opulence, with the big, you know, robes. Jesus came into the world really pretty marginal, you know, at the real brink of poverty. And who's singing the songs besides the angels? Who's going to be his witnesses? It's going to be shepherds until right. the kings come. We're on the lowest so rung, really, in a society. Yeah, basically. exactly. Right? Exactly. And the reason God did it, I mean, you really look at it and what's the whole reason? Because God didn't want to come into the world as some great general, as some great prince, as some mm -hmm. great rich person. He wants to come into the world with us mm -hmm. and he wants to share even our poverty and share even our marginal circumstances. He is identifying right from the very beginning with those who have to eke out a living and certainly, the, I mean, carpenters eked out a very good living. Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph, Joseph probably was not, uh, you know, poor, but they just, he, that's the, the circumstance, the conditions that God saw fit to come into. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason's pretty obvious because love is gift of self. And from the very beginning, not just at the time of the passion when he gives his whole life up mm -hmm. on the cross, but also at Christmas time, he is giving of himself. He's sacrificing himself out of love. That's always his characteristic. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I could, you know, just looking at it from the vantage point of physics, you could just say, or astronomy even, hey, why did God choose our galaxy? I mean, there are bigger, better galaxies. I mean, why did he choose Earth? You know, I mean, gosh, you're bigger, better planets. You know, <coughs> why? Mm -hmm. Why did he choose Galilee? Well, first of all, why did he choose Israel? Why did he pick that? I mean, there's come the big, huge country, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why Israel uh, gets the word of God for 1,800 uh, 1, right. years before Jesus? And why does he choose Galilee? I mean, they could have gone to the big city of Jerusalem, done something halfway right. But everything <laughs> he chooses is small, small, small. He's not calling attention to himself. His love will be the characteristic. His self-sacrifice will be the characteristic. He's, of course, God has infinite power. Of course, God could have come and not only come with ear-splitting thunderbolts and lightning bolts and everything else under the sun, but he comes with gentleness. 
He comes with care. He comes with the weaknesses of a baby. He comes into Israel and Galilee and in a manger. Uh, you know, that's where they're laying him, a place where you put animal food and, and in a, a, a cave or a stable where animals are fed. And you look at that and you go, well, what's the point of all of that? That infinite power is infinite love. Here's the proof. If that weren't the case, Jesus could have come with infinite power. That wasn't infinite care, infinite gentleness, and infinite love, and, and, and infinite vulnerability. Instead, Jesus could have come like, here I come, and you guys are in for it. So, of course, the point is pretty clear. He doesn't do anything of the kind but the opposite. And so we are left with, hey, why is infinite power, infinite vulnerability? Why is that the case? Because that's what love does. So anyway, I think it's a nice little proof of God's unconditionally loving nature. Right, absolutely. Uh, next up, uh, dear Father Spitzer, we talked a little bit about this. Dear Father Spitzer, my neighbor who is a member of the Church of Christ does not celebrate Christmas. His reasoning is the Bible does not state that Jesus was born on December 25th. I don't think it matters if Jesus was born on December 25th, June 25th, or particularly any other day. The important thing is he was mm -hmm. born, and that's what we're celebrating. Should we care what day Jesus was actually born? Frank. Frank, you've got the right attitude. Mm -hmm. It absolutely makes no difference whatsoever and we'll never be able to identify uh, the date. We just don't have sources. Josephus isn't an ultimate source. The, you know, the Quirinius uh, census is not an ultimate source. You just can't. We don't know and we won't know. And so, okay, we have a, a best date that we think, you know, that the primitive church came up with. Let's just celebrate the fact that Jesus got born, uh, uh, that Jesus was born, as you said, Frank, and in celebrating that fact, celebrate our redemption has come into the world what joy this is of course you can do that without having the exact date I remember so once uh, somebody was telling me that in one of uh, uh, an Marian apparition Mary was really upset that they got her birthday wrong you know are you kidding me are you you have to be kidding me I mean, do you think this is important to Mary? That's not what's important to Mary. What's important to Mary is that we're saying the rosary. What's important to Mary is we're converting our lives. What's important to Mary is becoming children of her wow. son. That's what's important to Mary. So, I mean, you know, it's, so don't, don't let the, these, these little right. issues get out of control and become more important than the big issues which you've already identified, Frank. You're right on the marker. Right, very good. Uh, next up, uh, dear Father Spitzer, why are the genealogies of Jesus so different between the Gospels of Matthew and Luke? Why is the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph significant since Joseph was not the actual father of Jesus? Pat. Well, Pat, I mean, uh, to show that uh, Jesus is linked to the genealogy, uh, is linked to, uh, to, to David and so forth, that even his foster father, mm -hmm. uh, right, not, it doesn't have to be his natural father, the person who raised him, right, is of the house of David, is important, and that the house of David uh, is connected um, uh, back to the, um, well, in one case, Adam, in another case, Abraham. Mm -hmm. But the, the point uh, that, that is... Uh, uh, clear is that, yeah, the genealogies take uh, off from two different starting points. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is you've got uh, two different um, 
um, uh, brothers uh, who are involved in um, uh, the lineage that ultimately gives rise to, to Joseph, etc. And so taking it through various lineages, mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm thinking that it's uh, David's uh, son, uh, or the two of David's sons, um, that uh, spring forth uh, the two uh, lineages. And mm -hmm. I, I have to remember one's the third son of David, one's the second son of David. I, I, I'm forgetting now which ones it, it was. But once it takes off from those two different sons, mm -hmm. as it turns out, Joseph uh, can still be um, you know the the you know the offspring that comes uh, from those uh, uh, brothers through two different routes. But the point is um, that at the end of the day, he is of the house of David, mm -hmm. and his lineage goes all the way back to the beginnings of Abrahamic faith, okay. and that's what the lineages establish, and that's all they need to establish uh, in order for uh, Jesus. Uh, to keep the promise, right, that he's going to be a son of God and son of man being born uh, uh, according to the messianic promise of the house of David. Okay, very good. Here's another question. Kind of relates to your childhood. Dear Father Spitzer, I grew up with the tradition of attending midnight mass on Christmas. For several years now, mm -hmm. it's been hard to find a mass celebrated at midnight. It said there's a mass at 10 p.m., Christmas Eve yeah. using the Midnight Mass Liturgy. Is it improper to use yeah. the Midnight Mass Liturgy at a Mass not celebrated at midnight? Why do we not celebrate at midnight any longer, Ronnie? Well, Ronnie, because you get bigger crowds at 10 p.m., to be <laughs> honest with you. And uh, uh, the church has already approved uh, Midnight Mass Liturgy for uh, 10 p.m., so uh, we may as well bring in the crowds. I mean, let's face it, a lot of people only go to Mass on Christmas. And I'm not saying we should accommodate ourselves completely, but we really do want to have outreach that'll bring as many people back to the church as we can. And hopefully having a wonderful midnight Mass experience. That's why they put the vigil as early too, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's uh, because they really do want to bring in as many people as, as they can to experience the beauty of this liturgy, which is the experience too. There's so much sacredness wrapped up with joy uh, in, in that liturgy. We want as many people to get a taste of that because it might just hook them to come back right. to Mass more often. And the same thing with the Easter Vigil and the same thing, honestly, with Good Friday uh, liturgies, et cetera. So uh, anyway, that's, that's the basic reason. Very good. Dear Father Spitzer, I've heard that the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem celebrates Mass using the Christmas liturgy all year long. Does this require special permission from the Pope? Question mark. Do they still celebrate Mass on Good Friday when Masses are not celebrated by the Church? This is Susan. I'm not sure if you're how up to... Well, Susan, unfortunately, I'm yeah. not up with the Church of the Nativity, but that doesn't sound right. You shouldn't be saying a Mass on Good Friday, period. Right. So that doesn't sound right. And I doubt that they're doing that. And um, I'm not sure. It, there's something that sounds a bit unusual. I have to okay. uh, look into it for you. Maybe I'll get back to you sometime after New Year's or something. There you go. And uh, get you the word on what they do. But uh, that would seem unusual to me because there's so many other... Um, you know, prayers that are so appropriate to different seasons, 
Uh, I just can't understand right. why they would do that, but maybe because of some special permission from the Pope, yeah. uh, they do. Or I maybe have they have one up. one mass every day is done that way, and then the other masses yeah. that might be done are done, done right. follow the normal Regular liturgy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, another question. Dear Father Spitzer, Catholic Church celebrates Christmas Day on December 25th. The Eastern Orthodox yeah. Church celebrates 13 days later. Why is there a discrepancy in the dates, Ryan? Uh, it goes back, I believe, to the Gregorian calendar, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I think it goes back also to the schism. But boy, again, you're going to stump me twice in a row. And it's now going to become stump the chump because, uh, you know. <laughs> it's your special I, I Christmas got, present to all uh, yeah, of us here. I know there, <laughs> is a, there is a reason, and I think it has to do with the Gregorian calendar. And I think it also has to do with the schism um, that happened uh, in the Fourth Crusade. I've got to take a look at it, though. Mm. I've got another one that I have to come back to you after New Year's on. So um, uh, stay oh, tuned, and I'll get word back to you. So you're not you. wearing an earpiece and have somebody's whispering into your ear these answers? No, huh? No, I'm okay. not, and I don't go over the questions ahead of time. Either. Absolutely, People you People always ask, you mean you don't hear those questions ahead of time? I go, nope. no. Nope. So, <laughs> that's half the fun, uh, at least on our part. Yeah, that's half the fun, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next up, uh, dear Father Spritzer, Luke describes the shepherds as finding the child Jesus is lying in a manger in Bethlehem. In Matthew, the Magi travel to Bethlehem and find Jesus in a house, possibly up to two years after his birth. If Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem for the census, why would they have remained there for an extended period instead of returning to Nazareth? This is Matthew. Well, Matthew, here's the deal. It's so hard to correlate the two infancy narratives. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, try and put together incidents and seasons and dates that correlate with them. And so, basically, exegetes have given up trying. Um, we, you know, I, I simply believe um, that uh, you know this happened. Uh, but do I believe that you know the description of a house versus you know a stable? Uh, do I believe you know that the incidents of time maybe um, you know that that could have been a, a time differential? Uh, that's going on there might have happened. It's so hard to say, uh, you know, that are these details, uh, are they meant to be details of a narrative or absolute mm -hmm. historical details? Probably uh, maybe details of the narrative. I do think, though, in the Lucan account with the manger, I'm pretty sure um, that is uh, uh, something that has historical significance. Bethlehem definitely, because it's in both narratives, mm -hmm. uh, has historical significance. Um, you know, uh, but you know the house part of it. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, right. uh, go to the bank on um, that not being a, a more of a narrative uh, accommodation rather than uh, a, you know historical reality. Not sure. Uh, not sure of the timing either, to be honest with you. No exegete really knows. But I do think there are, um, there's historical core to both narratives. And so all you have to do is you know, kind of just be respectful of the fact that there's a historical core to both narratives and, and uh, you know, without trying to correlate them, because you'll just go crazy if you do. We just don't have enough historical detail to correlate it. Uh, nor do we have enough, um, you know, understanding of who uh, the Magi were. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, they were some kind of astrologer. That's mm -hmm. the word 
that's being used. So they're stargazers. Mm -hmm. They're looking for potents in the sky. Uh, Jewish people didn't like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, basically, they were more or less repulsed by astrologers. So the fact that Matthew's got them in there uh, coming from, you know, uh, uh, the pagan lens, you can say, well, that's, you know, maybe Matthew had a theological agenda in mind, but why would he have chosen characters then if he were making them up that mm -hmm. would have been somewhat repulsive to the Jewish mindset? Uh, so again, you better not uh, just uh, wipe the Magi off the map here, mm -hmm. uh, the historical map. I think we have to be respectful of that historicity just in view right. of what I would call the principle of discontinuity. So I, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, that's just midrash or whatever. I don't, I, I really would say I caution against it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are historical cores here. You know, everybody was saying, oh, that town of Nain, you know, that town doesn't exist. We have never found that town and who knows what Luke was talking about. Clearly that was a metaphorical reference. Mm -hmm. Then of course, about 20 years ago, archeologists dig up this huge gateway way mm -hmm. and what's the town called well Nain is how we pronounce it here but Nain there it is mm -hmm. you know and people were going oops mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess it wasn't so metaphorical after all so the, the main thing of course is well, it's probably you just have to give the benefit of the doubt to things like that details you don't have to give the benefit of the right. doubt to you know if, if Matthew has to fill in the blanks by using sort of narrative uh, placeholders. I mean, he has to right. do that because, of course, he's not going to get a completed, detailed text. He's getting an oral tradition. Right. But I think that astrologers, uh, that one uh, really, that gets me um, because I do think it has a, uh, um, you know, a, a flavor of repulsiveness to the Jews. Why mm -hmm. would you do that? Why would you put right. that intentionally in a narrative that was written for Jewish people, especially Jewish uh, scribes and Pharisees? So that's the first thing, because Matthew's Gospel is written for that audience. Right. And the second thing is, you know, don't be so quick to discount that star. Uh, you know, there might be right. something going on there too. Uh, you know, maybe you can't link it perfectly uh, to astronomical evidence, but you can come pretty darn close uh, to some things that may well have happened that may have been interpreted as a potent. And by the right. way, uh, you know, the whole idea of them coming from the East, uh, very interesting, um, you know, to, to see this because these were cultures that were not thought, uh, you know, really to have uh, the Word of God in the same way the Jewish people were, and yet there's an admission uh, to this, uh, you know, as well. And, you know, maybe you say, well, maybe just Matthew wanted to get the whole Gentile significance right, in there. Right. Maybe, mm -hmm. but it could also be historically true. So my one thought is, yeah, don't uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, stick with uh, right. that, but don't let the, uh, you know, trying to link together the two chronologies don't do it. It'll save your sanity in the long run. And uh, I really, like I said, most really good exegetes have given up trying to do that, but they haven't given up on uh, obvious historic, uh, historical elements that are in both narratives. Right. Okay. Very good. Uh, another question in our closing moments here. Dear Father Spitzer, when Matthew describes the visit of the Magi, he says, 
The news of the birth of the Messiah troubled Herod and all of Jerusalem. I can understand Herod being troubled as it threatened his power, but why all of Jerusalem? The Jews waited a very long time for the Messiah. Why would they go along with Herod's decision to kill the Messiah? This is Sandy. Yeah, uh, Sandy, again, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, is... Uh, um, not necessarily an obedient city, uh, let me put it that way. Mm. Um, so if you've got some um, undercurrents uh, in Jerusalem, let's say, that are more interested in uh, being sycophantic uh, hang, uh, hangouts with, uh, with Herod, being more interested mm. in, in uh, the political power of Jerusalem rather than the expectation of the Messiah, that wouldn't surprise me. Mm. Um, so there were, uh, you know, Jerusalem's a big, powerful city. It's like, you know, a pluralistic city uh, here in the United States. You know, you get a, a New York or a Los Angeles or something. You've got a lot of people there. Mm. Now, are you going to have some people in Jerusalem that will be, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, totally pleased that the Messiah might be uh, coming? Uh, yes, you would. Are you going to have some people? Uh, in, in Jerusalem uh, saying, well, I'm not so happy about that. Yes, you would. Mm -hmm. So why say all of Jerusalem? Because it's an expression. Uh, it, again, it's not meant to be taken seriously. It's like, you know, out there in the city of Jerusalem, there are a lot of right. guys out there who were basically uh, upset. And that's what it really means. It doesn't mean the literal, you right. know, uh, all, you know. So, um, uh, you know, I, don't, don't get too worried about uh, that. It's really kind of a, uh, basically a semitism. It's basically, a, 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 you know, an expression. Very good. You got two minutes on the last one here. Dear Father Spitzer, okay. uh, what is the significance of the three gifts of the Magi? Could three gifts have any relationship to the Trinity? Veronica, I never heard that one, but Well, not to the Trinity necessarily, but they're are all kinds of theories about the gold, the frankincense, mm -hmm. and the myrrh, um, you know, and people have given it various uh, uh, symbolic significations throughout the ages. Uh, did Matthew have something in mind? Uh, possibly some exegetes think that, uh, um, you know, that each one of them represents uh, maybe something significant in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think so. I just think myself, you know, again, I'm, you know, simple as good. Gold is really um, uh, worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And frankincense is worth a lot of money. And, and myrrh is worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, that, so they're, they're trying to give something self-sacrificial, uh, you know, and of course we know that uh, uh, you know, some of the, these things, you know, incense for frankincense, you know, that, that might be uh, uh, something that may be signifying worship. Okay, myrrh, you know, uh, preparation for burial possibly, mm -hmm. you know, uh, might be something of that nature of a perfume or something of that nature, etc. So it's so hard to tell, uh, you know, what the significance might be uh, in Matthew's mind, but he does, uh, they're all of them are, uh, you know, thought to be precious, uh, something that would be a real a sacrifice uh, to give to this child mm -hmm. who is such a special child uh, who is coming into the world. I think, you know, a couple of exegetes, though, do have some um, much more uh, um, complex uh, Old Testament references uh, uh, to explain these things, right. and so uh, you might want to take a look at that, but I, I basically think it's right. self-sacrificial, and 
probably has to do with Jesus's later life, especially the frankincense right. and the myrrh. Well, we appreciate uh, those three wise men and you as our wise man. <laughs> and if you'd uh, give us your blessing on the way out the door for this uh, special uh, Christmas uh, time show. Absolutely. And may the Lord, the incarnate Lord, the incarnate Lord of love, who came into our midst to redeem us and bring us into the fullness of his love and joy, be upon you on this Christmas tide that you might experience the fullness of grace and holiness and be led into the light of Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. God bless you, and we shall see you soon. And we invite all of you, of course, to have a wonderful Christmas and to watch all the great programming that's going to be on EWTN and has been on EWTN during this holy season. Next time we'll be back with Father Spitzer's book as our topic, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, which is available through our EWTN religious catalog. Always a great gift. And the bookmark, make sure you can check us out every Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern for a different Catholic book and hopefully an interesting interview as well. And I'm Doug Keck. Join us next time when we once more cross over into Father Spitzer's universe. We'll be looking for the, you know, star of Bethlehem. You never know. See you next time.